Mother's Day is right around the corner. And in true She Pivots fashion, we're highlighting moms who've dedicated their lives and their pivots to supporting mothers. The iconic Christy Turlington will join us to talk about launching Every Mother Counts after pivoting from her 90s supermodel days. And later, the co-CEOs of Baby to Baby will share how they're addressing the needs for millions of babies and moms. So tune in and subscribe to She Pivots. New episodes out every Wednesday. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey fam, I'm Simone Boyce. I'm Danielle Robay. And we're the hosts of The Bright Side, a daily podcast from Hello Sunshine that's guaranteed to light up your day. Every weekday, we bring you conversations with the culture makers who inspire us. Like our recent episode with Hollywood royalty Regina and Raina King. We talked about the creative power of women's relationships. I feel like, thank God for women. Like, especially when it comes to Black women, the way we lean on our mothers, our grandmothers, our sisters, our friends. We're just each other's pulse. I mean... It's molecular, you know? Listen to The Bright Side from Hello Sunshine on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty, Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to the very first episode in a series of special episodes for this year's International Women's Month. This is Let's Talk About Myths, baby, and I am your host, Liv, who, for the first time in the history of this podcast, has actually planned a full month's worth of content. What a concept. But first, a quick announcement. I am doing a virtual book launch. That's right. For one, you best have already pre-ordered my book, Greek Mythology, The Gods, Goddesses, and Heroes Handbook. It has been pushed another week and now comes out March 30th, but it will be out eventually and I'm having a launch for it. A Zoom book launch, which means that anyone can attend, though there is a limit number of attendees on the day of, so first come, first serve there. Head to monroebooks.com, that's M-U-N-R-O books.com to find information about registering for this event. It should be really fun and I'm pretty excited that so many of you awesome people will be able to attend from like anywhere other than, you know, that whole time zone thing. So please, I hope to see you all or so many of you there that day. It will be really fun. Back to what's coming up on the podcast. 
In the coming weeks, we have episodes on the most badass women of mythology, and notably, women who have been wronged by the telling of their stories over the generations and the interpretation and reception of those stories. Women like Clytemnestra and Medea, Jocasta and Phaedra, Helen, and even the very real Cleopatra herself. Women whose stories have been overtaken by other people's judgment of their actions and just by the fact that they were women who often had ideas of their own, who wanted freedom in their mythological, and in some cases very real, lives. This month, we'll have episodes where I've sat down with some really exciting real-life women to talk about some of those same women of mythology and history, I spoke with fan-favorite author Anwen Kaya Hayward about Medea. I spoke with Amy Hines about everyone's favorite righteous murderess, Clytemnestra. The wonderful women of the Partial Historians podcast, Dr. Rad and Dr. G, will give us all an epic lesson on the very real and very misunderstood last pharaoh of Egypt, Cleopatra VII. Dr. Ellie Mackin-Roberts, author of Heroines of Olympus, discusses the goddess of spring and death, Persephone. Jennifer Saint, author of the upcoming novel Ariadne, speaks with me about Ariadne's oh-so-misunderstood sister, Phaedra. And frankly, I've got lots more planned that is just going to burst beyond the month of March because I cannot stop myself. March, as International Women's Month, has fit perfectly with the end of our episodes reading the Odyssey. So the Friday episodes of the podcast in March will feature those conversations that I've just mentioned. We'll start another reading series soon, but for now, strong and badass women are incoming. Particularly those women wronged by their storytellers, their interpreters, and by time itself. But that's the month to come. Today, we're starting it off with a bang. This is episode 115. Evil or righteous? Manipulative or brilliant? Wronged women of mythology. Jocasta, as we all well remember, was the wife and mother of Oedipus. In most representations and analysis of their story, Jocasta is relegated to the darkness of her fate in that story. She marries her son after he's killed her first husband, his father, before taking her own life when she learns of it. Jocasta's story is one of the most famous stories of Greek mythology, but it's rarely told as her story. It's always her son's story. If Jocasta isn't forgotten entirely, then she's somehow partially the villain in the understanding of it, as if she had any say whatsoever in what happened. Their story is tragic, but it's far more tragic for Jocasta than it is Oedipus. And yet, whose name is it that we know, oh, so well? Jocasta was the queen of Thebes, wife of Laius. The oracle told her husband that he'd be murdered by their child, so they were to have no children. Jocasta's baby, when she had one, was taken from her, exposed and left to die. The poor child's feet were even pinned together to prevent him from crawling to safety. Her life went on from there, presumably not a very enjoyable life. Sure, she was queen, but without a family, women didn't have much to do with their lives. She was a wife without children for decades. 
just existing with a husband that she may have liked, but I tend towards assuming that he wasn't particularly likable, given his actions and eventual fate. Lias seems like a bit of a shit. And so, finally, Lias dies. It's not clear how Jocasta feels about the death of her husband, but it also coincides generally with Thebes being freed from the grasp of the menacing Sphinx, so one can guess that she was a little relieved that the Sphinx was over with. If perhaps a bit concerned for her fate without her husband, the king, and no heirs to show for their marriage. Before long, though, Jocasta finds a renewed happiness, possibly the first time in her life when she is actually in love, and love is returned. She meets the man who defeated the Sphinx, a stranger from Corinth, a handsome one at that, even if he did remind her of her late husband. His name? Oedipus. That Jocasta and Oedipus were very much in love is something we pretty much know for a fact. They chose to marry each other, Jocasta didn't have to in this case, and they were passionate about one another. The volume of offspring they produced is evidence of that. Two sons, two sons and two daughters, and a shared life. Finally, Jocasta has a happy and fulfilling life. She has children to devote herself to, a husband she loves, and a comfortable life as queen of Thebes. Life is good. For a long time, too. Their children are teenagers before everything starts to fall apart for the happy couple. Jocasta has been living happily with her beloved husband, Oedipus, until the plague begins. The plague is, however, an invention of Sophocles, and isn't necessarily from the original myth. The plague is a famous detail and spurs the actions of the story, but it may have also been a reference to the very real plague that was, for lack of a better term, plaguing Athens. With the plague on Thebes comes the unraveling of Jocasta's happy life. Jocasta herself is the first one to understand what's happened, without her knowledge. It takes Oedipus a while, even though all the signs are there. But she knows. She knows, and she even tries to spare him the shame of learning the truth, asking him to stop prying into the details of their lives. Stop asking questions about who killed Laius and therefore who remains in the city causing this plague. She tries her best to save the man she now knows to be both her husband and her son from the shame that's about to descend on him. He doesn't listen, though. He's stubborn, and eventually the truth comes tumbling out. He killed the king of Thebes, Laius. He was the son of Laius and Jocasta, saved by a Theban herdsman, given eventually to the king and queen of Corinth. Jocasta had, entirely unknowingly, fallen in love with her own son and married him, had his children. In learning this, Jocasta's entire existence is shattered. She'd found happiness after the death of her first husband, to whom she had no children, She'd found love and comfort and had been able to have a family of her own, four beautiful children. Now, all of that meant very little, because her beloved husband Oedipus was actually her own son. The story of Oedipus, and primarily the play Oedipus Tyrannos, is always treated as a tragedy. But it's presented as a tragedy for Oedipus not really one for Jocasta. She barely features in the play, she kills herself off stage when she learns the truth, she's a side piece, a minor character, when in truth, she 
is the tragic character of the whole thing. Everything happens to her in a way that it doesn't happen to Oedipus. She's by far the most harmed by the story. But everyone knows Oedipus's name. Worse, they know his name from Freud's ridiculous theory that all boys go through a period where they want to kill their fathers and marry their mothers. As if that's what happened, and as if Jocasta was just a pawn in the whole mess. Jocasta deserves much better. Medea was a princess of Colchis, a daughter of gods. She was divine, had magical powers, and was an overall brilliant strategist. If she hadn't fallen in love with one of the worst men Greek mythology has to offer, she would have gone on to do great things. Of course, she did end up doing great things in the broad sense of the term. She did monumental things, actions requiring powerful magic, requiring planning and strategy, requiring bravery and exceptional intelligence. But because of Jason, those great things were mostly, well, murder. I'm not going to tell you Medea's story yet again. To refresh, if you want, you can listen to episodes 64, 66, and 67, where I covered her in great detail. Links are in the episode's description. Still, we're not going to have an episode on women wronged by their storytellers and by misogyny and not at least mention Medea. Nor Medusa, because if there's one woman of mythology who's been deeply, horribly wronged by her storytellers and by time and misogyny, it's Medusa. A beautiful woman transformed into a monstrous form, or born that way, both are reasonable possibilities for the woman we know as Medusa. It simply depends on who you're reading. Across all interpretations of her, though, we know she did not seek out her fate. She did not deserve to be taken out by Perseus. She did nothing wrong, and she was protecting herself. And yet, What do we have now? Stories on her deserving death, her terrorizing those around her, or worse, that her death provided some sort of balance in the world, as if a woman's death should be justified when the truth of it is. Perseus wanted her head, so he took it. Like Medea, I'm not going to tell you her story again. I've done it very recently, but she can't be left out of an episode about these concepts, these ways in which women of mythology have been harmed by their storytellers, by misogyny, by history and reception. For more information on Medusa than you ever knew you needed, you can listen to my recent episode 107, or 31 for her story from Ovid, or my discussion with Anwankaya Hayward for the ways in which men on the internet have tried to co-opt her. Again, links are in this episode's description. Helen was a princess of Sparta long before she was a queen. Helen was born in Sparta, the daughter of Leda and Zeus, sister to Clytemnestra, Castor, and Polyduques, daughter of Zeus biologically, but accepted as princess of Sparta, as daughter of Leda's husband and king of Sparta, Tyndarius. Helen was Helen of Sparta long before she was wife to Menelaus. 
But beauty can be a curse in an ancient patriarchy where women are treated as property. Every eligible nobleman of Greece fought to marry Helen, as if she were a prize to be won by the richest, the most impressive. What she wanted, or what she thought, didn't factor in at all. They all came together to vie for her hand. The suitors of Helen were, apparently, so adamant in their courting of her that her father, Tyndarius, was worried they'd basically start a war over it. That once one was chosen, the others would simply take up arms in anger. Seems they were sealing the poor woman's fate right there. Odysseus, ultimately, provides a so-called solution, though what he really does is fuck things up even worse for Helen and for Greece as a whole. Odysseus went to court Helen, but not really in earnest. As soon as he got there, he figured he didn't really have a chance with her, so he didn't even try. What he did was single out another woman who was there, Penelope, daughter of Icarius and cousin to Helen. He told he told Tyndarius that he had a solution to his fears over the anger of the suitors, that he'd solve the problem if Tyndarius supported him marrying Penelope instead. Tyndarius went for it, and Odysseus's solution was to have all the suitors swear an oath that they would defend whoever won Helen's hand. They would pledge themselves to the winner's marriage, to come to his aid should anyone ever threaten it. Once more, where does Helen as a person figure in? Absolutely nowhere. She's a beautiful prize to be won, to be fought over, an oath sworn to defend her marriage to whatever man ends up winning. Of course, Menelaus wins, and he marries Helen, and it's that meaningless oath that forces every Greek to take up arms against Troy when she's kidnapped by Paris. And she is almost certainly kidnapped. I think people want to believe they fell in love, and it's not impossible, surely, but it's not likely either. Paris and Helen barely knew each other. They met, and so very shortly after, she was taken away by Paris. She seems content enough once she's in Troy, from the sources we have, which suggests that, you know, those nine years in, they may have been happy, but what is more likely is she was once more resigned to her fate, just as she'd become resigned when she was forced to marry Menelaus. When your life is not your own, you find a way to deal. And once that Ten Years' War is over, a war fought on behalf of the idea of her, that she was the property of Menelaus and that property had been stolen, she was returned to him, returned to her home in Sparta, and once more expected to live as though nothing had happened, as though nothing was wrong, as though there hadn't been a complete and utter devastation wrought on the Trojans in her name, as if she wasn't blamed for the entire thing, as if she had any kind of agency in the whole mess, as if she had any kind of say in what happened. Helen was a victim of her own fate, a survivor of it, really, because she did go back to the kingdom in Sparta, she did pretend as though nothing had happened, she continued to be queen, to raise her daughter, to live her life. Helen one of history and myth's most famous survivors, who's never seen as such. Hey fam, I'm Simone Boyce. I'm Danielle Robay. 
And we're the hosts of The Bright Side, a daily podcast from Hello Sunshine that's guaranteed to light up your day. Every weekday, we bring you conversations with the culture makers who inspire us. Like our recent episode with Hollywood royalty Regina and Raina King. We talked about the creative power of women's relationships. I feel like, thank God for women, like, especially when it comes to Black women, the way we lean on our mothers, our grandmothers, our sisters, our friends. We're just each other's pulse. I mean, it's molecular, you know? Listen to The Bright Side from Hello Sunshine on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Mother's Day is right around the corner, and in true She Pivots fashion, we're highlighting moms who've dedicated their lives and their pivots to supporting mothers. The iconic Christy Turlington will join us to talk about launching Every Mother Counts after pivoting from her 90s supermodel days. And later, the co-CEOs of Baby to Baby will share how they're addressing the needs for millions of babies and moms. So tune in and subscribe to She Pivots. New episodes out every Wednesday. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Andromeda was a black princess from Africa, ancient Ethiopia, to be precise. That's right, one of the most famous mortals in Greek mythology was 100% a black woman. Not that popular culture or art would tell you that, even if her story quite clearly takes place in Africa. Andromeda was a black woman who ultimately married Perseus, one of ancient Greece's most ancient and important heroes. Together, they founded the city of Mycenae, and as a result were understood to be ancestors of, possibly, most of the Peloponnesian Peninsula. That essentially means that heroes like Heracles and famous Greeks like Agamemnon and Menelaus, let alone women like Penelope, Clytemnestra, and the notoriously beautiful Helen, among countless others, were believed to be descended from a black woman from Africa. Of course, in every depiction of her I've ever seen, she's very, very whitewashed. Some paintings, not at all contemporary with the Greeks, mind you, but Renaissance and later, show her as whiter than fucking snow, let alone even European Mediterranean in her complexion. But in truth, Andromeda was understood by the ancient Greeks to be, quite definitely, a beautiful, dark-skinned, black princess.
Clytemnestra was the daughter of Leda and Tyndareus, king and queen of Sparta. She was princess of Sparta, sister to Helen, Castor, and Polyduques. She was born into one of the most important families of Greek mythology, leaders of the most important city in the Peloponnese. But, regardless of what she did herself, what choices she made for her life, Clytemnestra's fate was going to be defined by her sister, Helen, whose own fate was determined by the men who courted her. When Helen was, so-called, won by Menelaus, he moved to Sparta, where he became king, having married the princess. An odd sort of situation, and one that put him in a position of power based on his wife's birth rather than his own. And as a kind of dark-as-fuck consolation prize, Helen's sister, Clytemnestra, was given to Menelaus's brother, Agamemnon, to be his wife. That couple returned to Agamemnon's home as king of Mycenae, where Clytemnestra is displaced versus her sister, who got to remain in their home in Sparta. They have four children, Iphigenia, Electra, Chrysothemis, and Orestes. Whether they had any affection for one another isn't clear. It wasn't necessarily something to be concerned with in the sources. To those ancient sources, they were simply married. When their eldest child, Iphigenia, is a teenager, Agamemnon tells the family that she will be married to Achilles. Setting aside the obvious gross of this, telling a woman she's about to marry a man she's never met because her father says so, Iphigenia herself is actually presented as excited. Achilles is, after all, one of the most famous and impressive of the Greeks. Her father, Achilles, and all the other Greek men are about to sail off to wage war with Troy over Clytemnestra's own sister, a sister she's forced to condemn at every turn because of this. So Clytemnestra brings Iphigenia to Aulis, where the Greeks plan to set sail. This is where she'll marry Achilles. But as we all know by now, she will not marry Achilles. Instead, in what may be the only instance of human sacrifice in Greek mythology, Iphigenia is slaughtered by her own father like an animal. All because he needed a little bit of wind for his ships. It works, of course, and off the Greeks sail to Troy. Agamemnon leaves behind his remaining three children and his wife, Clytemnestra, who spends the next ten years of the war plotting her revenge. And rightly so. Clytemnestra, while she's rarely portrayed as such, is one of the most righteous women in all mythology. Her daughter was sacrificed before her eyes, when both thought she was there to be married to the best of the Greeks. And then off her husband went, leaving her for the next ten years. It's tough to imagine what sort of welcome Agamemnon thought he'd return to after the war, but somehow he didn't see his fate coming. Because, well, Clytemnestra murdered him when he returned home. Or, according to some sources, her new lover, Aegisthus, does the murdering, but I think it's more likely it would have been Clytemnestra herself who pulled the metaphorical trigger. She was, after all, the one whose daughter was murdered before her eyes. In one of the most righteous acts of vengeance in literary history, Agamemnon is murdered by his wife. But even though he sacrificed Iphigenia, causing Clytemnestra's anger, it's Agamemnon who's treated as the victim in the works to come. Obviously murder is bad, that doesn't need to be said, but when the murder is for reasons like Clytemnestra's, it's tough not to see where she was coming from. 
But in the plays telling their stories over hundreds of years to come, even Electra and Orestes, their children, don't find sympathy for their mother. They side with Agamemnon after his death, eventually killing Clytemnestra, just as she'd killed their father. In the underworld, when Agamemnon meets with Odysseus, not only does he praise Penelope, as I mentioned earlier, but he goes on and on about his own wife and all her treachery. And I mean, fine, he was the one murdered, but what's most egregious is that the rationale for her revenge is rarely taken into consideration. There's little thought given to Iphigenia or why Agamemnon may have, even just a little bit, deserved what he got. Instead, Clytemnestra becomes known simply as a murderous woman, a monster. She did kill her husband, after all, the man who legally controlled her. She killed the man who, in the legal sense, owned her outright. Penelope was the daughter of Icarius, cousin to Helen and Clytemnestra. As I mentioned earlier, Penelope ended up with Odysseus when he determined that he wasn't likely to win Helen at the gathering of every eligible suitor in the Greek world. When he knew Helen wasn't going to be his, he set his sights on Penelope instead. One anecdote about the early days of their marriage puts her father, Icarius, in the bizarre position of begging his daughter to stay with him in Sparta, rather than leaving for Ithaca with her new husband. It's weird. He chases their chariot as they try to leave, pleading with her to stay. Finally, Odysseus asks her to choose, leave for Ithaca with me, or stay behind in Sparta with your father. Penelope doesn't speak in her response. She just hides her face behind her veil, which her father takes to be confirmation that she is choosing to leave with Odysseus, but that she's being modest and not saying it outright. He accepts her decision and he builds a monument to modesty for it. Again, it's all very weird and it's setting the scene for the portrayal of Penelope as the modest, so-called perfect wife. Of course, most of their marriage is spent apart, their only child is just a baby when Odysseus heads to Troy to defend Menelaus's right to own his wife, Helen. And as we all know so well, Odysseus takes an awful long time getting home. Throughout those 20 years that Odysseus is away, Penelope gains a reputation for being, again, so-called perfect. She rejects the suitors, putting them off year after year until finally Odysseus returns. We know so little of those years without him. She doesn't like the suitors, she tricks them, which is impressive, but that's about all we know. What little more comes in the wildly rude way Telemachus speaks about her throughout the Odyssey. He's a little dick, Telemachus. But regardless of how little we know about Penelope and her life in Ithaca without Odysseus, she is perpetually portrayed as the perfect wife, the perfect woman. But why? because she doesn't fall for any of those obnoxious men who are coming at her at all moments of the day, as though she owes one of the marriage and the sex that comes from it? I think Penelope's a brilliant character, but the reasoning behind her apparent perfection is flawed at best, let alone the inherent troubling nature of an idea of perfection placed upon a woman. In Pandora's Jar, Natalie Haynes points out that the idea of her being perfect suggests that the perfect wife is just one you don't ever see. 
When Odysseus sees Agamemnon in the underworld, Agamemnon goes on and on about how Odysseus has the perfect wife, how incredible Penelope is, specifically in comparison to Clytemnestra, Agamemnon's own wife. Beyond the Odyssey, interpretations of Penelope have always suggested she is the perfect, modest, ideal woman. She becomes known for her fidelity, and only her fidelity. She is an icon of not cheating on your husband, but also not ever seeing your husband, and therefore being, somehow, the perfect wife. Penelope herself was a badass, a powerful woman who didn't want to give up her life and freedom to the obnoxious suitors, who did what she had to do to wait it out. Maybe Odysseus would come back, and then it's the old the-devil-you-know situation. She'd rather have her husband return from war, whether she truly loved him or not, than give in to one of the suitors who had behaved like some of the worst men imaginable. She simply had her own best interests in mind, and more power to her for that. This idea of a perfect wife is troubling enough, but that it's one that turns down sex with suitors because what, she's so modest and pure and perfect? The levels of problematizing in that when it comes to women in general are just beyond. Meanwhile, in a complete juxtaposition of Penelope as the perfect wife, the enslaved women of her palace are some of the most poorly treated women of mythology when it comes to their storytellers and the reception of their stories and actions. Odysseus returns home from war, finds out that some of the enslaved women of the palace slept with some of the suitors, in truth were probably assaulted by the suitors, and decides that they all must die. Finally, he's convinced not to kill every single one of them, only the women who definitely were with the suitors in one way or another. And their deaths are the worst of the whole epic poem that is the Odyssey. They're given one of the most insulting, degrading, tragic, and violent deaths imaginable. It's horrible. I'm not going to retell it here because I've read it really recently in those last books of the Odyssey, but it's horrific. And why? Because for 10 years, these horrible men were taking up space in the palace, eating and drinking everything, being obnoxious and lewd all the time, probably assaulting the women, and eventually that led to at least a couple of the enslaved women turning to the side of the suitors. They're pretty awful to Odysseus when he's disguised as the old traveler. But who can blame them? They, like Penelope, are out to survive. They're trying to keep themselves safe and secure in a home that is increasingly unsafe for them. And history describes them as sluts and whores who simply had to be executed, and not even by Odysseus himself. He leaves it to the couple of herdsmen who have sided with him. It's a simple yet effective method of making it clear that these women mean absolutely nothing to him. Many of today's stories I've told in various ways before, but in the case of most of them, my own thoughts and opinions on their stories have changed a lot in the intervening years. Their stories are shaped by the people who told them, the way they're received over the centuries or the millennia. They're shaped by the patriarchy that they were developed in, the patriarchy that we exist in now. They're shaped by the rampant misogyny on the internet and in life, in popular culture. 
They're shaped by so many outside forces that it's often difficult to find the truth, to drill down into what might have originally been meant all those thousands of years ago. Or even better, what the women who heard the stories then might have thought, what truths they might have known amongst themselves that we'll never know. In this episode, I wanted to focus on as many of those women as I could, not to retell their stories again, but instead to focus on how their stories became what they are, how our understanding of these women has become what it is today, to focus on them as people in their own stories and how those stories have been corrupted. In the coming episodes this month, I've spoken with some incredible women with even more conversations planned. At this point, I've actually planned more than can fit into the entire month of March, so this whole thing will continue on. I'm going to cover plays I've missed before now, featuring complex women whose stories have been influenced and affected by their storytellers and by history. It turns out there are just so, so many. So this coming Friday, you'll hear the first of the many conversation episodes, this time with fan favorite Anwen Kaya Hayward, who you might remember from the Medusa conversation we had about shitty dudes on the internet. We spoke about Medea, one of the main examples of a woman whose story has been overtaken by interpretation. And there's just so, so much more to come this month. So thank you all for listening. I can't wait for you to hear what else I have in store. It's going to be one of the most interesting months worth of content that I've ever put out. And I should add, most will be new stories. It's just a day where I wanted to do an overview of many. This month, you'll finally hear the tragic story of Ariadne's sister Phaedra, who Theseus married after he'd abandoned Ariadne on Naxos. You'll get the story of Cleopatra, one of history's most misunderstood women. Either Antigone or the Phoenician women will be covered. Frankly, I can't decide which. But the other will probably come out shortly after anyway. There's just so much new content coming and so many fascinating conversations on new and beloved women of mythology and history. I hope you enjoy. Thank you all. You're the best. I am Liv and I love this shit. Hey fam, I'm Simone Boyce. I'm Danielle Robay. And we're the hosts of The Bright Side, a daily podcast from Hello Sunshine that's guaranteed to light up your day. Every weekday, we bring you conversations with the culture makers who inspire us. Like our recent episode with Hollywood royalty Regina and Raina King. We talked about the creative power of women's relationships. I feel like, thank God for women, like, especially when it comes to Black women, the way we lean on our mothers, our grandmothers, our sisters, our friends, we're just each other's pulse. I mean, it's molecular, you know? Listen to The Bright Side from Hello Sunshine on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Mother's Day is right around the corner, and in true She Pivots fashion, We're highlighting moms who've dedicated their lives and their pivots to supporting mothers. The iconic Christy Turlington will join us to talk about launching Every Mother Counts after pivoting from her 90s supermodel days. And later, the co-CEOs of Baby to Baby will share how they're addressing the needs for millions of babies and moms. So tune in and subscribe to She Pivots. New episodes out every Wednesday. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals, Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.